If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got an episode about the history of Northumbria with Dan Jackson, the author of The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People, A New History. Our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, spoke to Dan about the development of the region's culture and industry and how that connected to the history of his own family. First of all, what I want to ask you is, what were your motives for writing this book? Did you feel that it's an area of England that's been particularly neglected um, by historians? What, what was your inspiration? Well, the starting point for the book was that I think the northeast of England is, is, pre- is a pretty distinctive place. And the people who live in the northeast of England have sort of rec- traits that are recognisable to the rest of the country in a way that I'd, I'd noticed in my own life. Some of that is sort of caricatural. You know, it's the sort of boisterous, uh, sociable, um, sometimes belligerent caricature of the Northeasterner, the Geordie, that uh, always interested me. And anecdotally, you you hear these stories all the time in the Northeast about how people think people in the Northeast are extremely friendly, aren't they? They're very sociable. They like to go out and celebrate and you know, things like Newcastle being regularly listed as one of the world's great party cities. And I was just interested where all that sort of thing might have come from. I thought the answer is bound to lie in the deep past. And that's where the um, where the research took me, really, because I was always very interested in an idea that someone introduced to me when I was a student about which he described as cultural archaeology. I think we're all familiar with the idea of ordinary archaeology, but I think you can apply a similar sort of framework to understanding the present is by just digging through the strata of history, really. And as soon as I started to do that with the history of the northeast of England, its distinctiveness, I think, can be traced back to its unique position, geographical position in these islands as a borderland for many for many centuries, starting with the Romans. That's really interesting. So just how far back do we go in your book? Perhaps you can tell our listeners. Uh, well, my book basically goes back as far as 
the Roman wall, the building of the Roman wall in the second century, all the way up to the present day, really. And I think the, the building of the Roman wall was so dis- decisive in many ways because it established the Northeast as this frontier zone, a militarized frontier zone, which it was for a long time. Even after the Romans left, it was right in that kind of day. It was a dangerous frontier zone for a long time. First of all, in terms of fighting off the Vikings who raided but did not settle the northeast of England, interestingly enough. They didn't, they didn't settle much north of the River Tees. And then in the centuries of warfare with Scotland, when um, in a great phrase that uh, one historian used, the northeast of England was the ring in which the champions met. It was that part of these islands where England and Scotland collided with each other down the centuries time and again. And where, whereas the rest of the particular rest of England in particular was pretty peaceful, the northeast of England wasn't. So, for example, there are no domestic medieval buildings left in Northumberland because they're all burned down. But there's plenty of castles, though. And Northumberland, for example, is the most fortified county in the in the British Isles, which is interesting. So it goes back a long way. I read that statistic in the book and I was that was really interesting. That it's got the I think it's the greatest number of recognised battle sites in England and it's got the more fortified castles than anywhere else. And one writer, you mentioned that uh, one writer of Northumbrian history even comments that um, Geordies were the backbone of the British armed forces for centuries. Um, so we've got this sort of idea of Northum- Northumbrian history as one that's centred on violence and conflict. Is that a fair assumption or is that simplifying things? No, I, I think it is. It's, an, it's, a really, it's one of the really important strands in the history of the northeast of England. This, uh, this history of conflict, which bred a certain martial strain in Northumbrian history, which didn't just apply in the, you know, the early medieval period or the medieval period or the early modern. I think it persisted beyond that. Uh, well into the 20th century, in fact, where local army regiments, for example, in the north that were recruited in the northeast of England. If you take the long view of Northumbrian history and you think about the period of Roman occupation, right up until what we used to call the Dark Ages and the, the turbulence of that period when the kingdom of Northumbria first emerged, uh, when the it was arguably the first united kingdom in these islands when Venetia and Dira uh, joined together in the 6th and 7th centuries. And then you have uh, a period of warfare among those Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And then you have all the difficulties they had in terms of fighting off the Vikings, who um, raided but did not settle the northeast of England. And the place name evidence is really interesting about, you know, the Viking place names that, that you see a lot of in Yorkshire, for example, the BY ending places. They don't really exist north of the Tees. Um, and that's always been an important dividing line in England. And even after that period, you've got the harrying of the north under the Normans and the building of the new castle um, in the 11th century and the building of Durham Cathedral as part of that military occupation of the northeast of England. A very brutal period where the population's absolutely um, decimated. Then you've got the seven, at least seven centuries of warfare with Scotland, which left a big imprint in everything from you know, terms of, of in terms of architecture, we discussed earlier about the, the fortifications that you can still see everywhere around you in the northeast, as well as um, patterns of of land tenure. You know, in other parts of this of these islands where 
um, in, in return for access to land. Agricultural labour was given in return. In the northeast, it was military service, which was really important. And it bred a culture in the northeast where courage and heroism were much celebrated. Certainly, if you compare the northeast to the rest of the country, which was relatively peaceful, rest of England, I should say, which was relatively peaceful, I think you, you start to see this, this distinctive pattern of conflict really shaping the culture in the northeast of England. So what are some examples of how it might have shaped the culture? Is it in this sort of macho stereotype that we might have when we think about the, the people there, or, or does it extend further than that? Well, it was it was fundamentally a dangerous place to live for a long time. Uh, and the people of the northeast had to worry about, you know, armies appearing over the hill in a way that didn't really apply in the rest of the country. So I mentioned earlier about the uh, the um, architectural legacy of all this and the fact that there are no domestic building, medieval domestic buildings left in Northumberland. Patterns of settlement where people tended to huddle together for warmth and safety uh, in the face of such threats were, I think, the origins of a lot of the sociability that you still see in Northeastern culture, which uh, found fresh expression, you might say, in the industrial period of the 18th and 19th centuries when the, the industries of the Northeast were dangerous too, where hard work, courage, teamwork, solidarity were much praised and, and relied upon in a way that they had been in those centuries of conflict going back, well, going back to the Roman Wall, as I mentioned earlier. So all of those factors, I think, contributed to a, a distinctive culture in the Northeast that I, I, I still think you can see. And for an interesting example of that, you've just got to read Viz comic. The Viz has always been really good at lampooning the sort of um, northeast macho stereotypes, and in my view, they emerge from the northeast being a dangerous place for a long time, where all this was, all these sort of traits were celebrated. One thing you spoke about in your book was the mining population. You wrote that in 1911, one in five of the working population was a miner. Well, I'm presuming that that was the men. <laughs> one in five of the, the working male population was a miner. And in Durham, I think it was one in three. You speak about your own grandfather's experiences. I wondered if you'd like to tell some of our listeners about his experiences as a miner and how, how he felt about the industry. Yeah, well, I grew up in a pit village called New Hartley, which is in southeast Northumberland. And it was famous because in 1862, there was a terrible mining disaster there where 204 men and boys were killed. They were killed underground. They were suffocated because the, the shaft, the beam engine snapped and blocked the shaft up and the men couldn't get out and they slowly suffocated. It, it was this tragic story, but a fairly typical one actually in the Great Northern Coalfield, which was characterised by, by death and danger constantly. In fact, their mass grave of all those men and boys in Erzden Churchyard just has the inscription on the top of it, in the midst of life we are in death. And that was a fact of life in the coal fields. And um, like I said, I grew up in a pit village. My grandfather was a coal miner at a colliery called Bates in Blythe in Northumberland, which was a wet pit. It was known as a wet pit because it went out six or seven miles under the North Sea and the seawater used to come in, which used to strike me as absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of miners had a sort of odd love-hate relationship with coal mining because it was so hard and dangerous on the one hand, but on the other hand, it could be absolutely spectacular and rewarding. And it was the ultimate skilled work in many respects. So periodically you hear people say, you know, um, my my grandfather would never let his son go down the pit and that sort of thing. Or we should be careful not to romanticise coal mining. 
And I entirely agree because, I mean, between 1850 and 1950, I think the stats are for Britain, about 100,000 coal miners were killed at work. Mm. Many thousands more horribly injured and disabled and so on. So we definitely shouldn't romanticise it. But the problem is the miners themselves romanticised coal mining because they wrote ballads about it. They Mm. wrote poetry about it. Uh, My own grandfather was a painter, a Pittman painter, although not part of the Ashington group. But he painted coal mining scenes in his spare time. He was obsessed with it. He loved being a coal miner. So to an extent, I grew up with a consciousness of how lethally dangerous that industry was, but also, frankly, some of the romance of it. And my own grandfather, I've still got a treasured possession in our house as a a piece of quartz that he mined out from under the North Sea when uh, him and his Mara, which is the Geordie word for, for workmate, knocked under, knocked through and found this cavern under the North Sea full of quartz. And I've still got a piece of it. So it's hard not to be, for your imagination, not to be captured by some of these things. But, you know, the coal mining industry in the Northeast was was dying or in a steep decline from as early as the 1960s. And I just saw what you might call the, the glowing embers of that. But also autodidacticism, you know, that sense of working people who were well-read, well-informed, had their own intellectual hinterlands. Uh, and that was certainly the case of my grandfather and his Maras in the Northumberland coalfield. And what about female labour in the industrial northeast? What were what were women up to at this in terms of work at, at this time and, and the years before? Well, well, work in the northeast was unusually gendered. It was typical in the northeast coalfields. If I just dwell on the coalfields before I talk about the riverside communities, but in the coalfields, it was traditional that me, that women miners' wives did not go out to do paid work outside the home. That was a mark of pride. It was also for for the miners themselves, but it was also uh, a reflection of the fact that coal mining was actually very well paid, uh, and you could survive as a one income family. But also the fact that ma- coal mining just could not have existed without female domestic labour, and the women were extraordinarily hard. And I still I saw the legacy of that what I call in the book competitive domesticity, you know, who had the cleanest front step, the cleanest net curtains, all that stuff. And miners' wives were very hard, you know, kept kept, kept the fire going 24-7, shoveled calories into the miners, you know, um, uh, in terms of cooking their, cooking their meals, washing them, washing their clothes, washing their bodies in the tin bath in front of the fire, as the cliche goes. Um, but they weren't paid to do it. So that was... You know, in comparison to places like Lancashire and Yorkshire, where men and women would work alongside each other in the cotton mills and so on, that didn't apply in the Northeast. And again, you might say some of those caricatures about Northeast masculinity might come from the legacy of that industrial culture, you might say. There was also, you know, the communities on um, in places like North and South Shields where women did do paid work, where there were coal mines, there were local coal mines, but there was also loads of job opportunities for women in, in things like fish processing. So you get the fishwives and fisher lasses of, of Tyneside processing the catch and that sort of thing, or or interestingly working in roperies, which is considered female work. These You can always spot them on Victorian maps because they're these long, thin buildings where they made rope, and that was considered <laughs> female work uh, in the 19th century. So it wasn't entirely without female paid labour but the coal fields were unique in that respect yeah they were the masculine field um you dedicate a whole chapter in your book to what you term the northumbrian enlightenment 
Can you speak a bit about how learning literacy um, and curiosity are a big part of the history of the Northeast? So how did the Enlightenment manifest there? What sort of breakthroughs and advancements did we see? What came out of the Northeast? Well, I think um, I, I make the connection back to the, there's more or less two golden ages, you might say, in Northumbrian history. There's the period of Bede and Cuthbert and Aidan, uh, the, the era of the, the great monastery at Monk Weymouth and Jarrow, where it probably had the, the world's largest library at the time, and it created these extraordinary illuminated manuscripts and so on. And you've got a second golden age, which which is arrives at the same time as the expansion of the coal trade. And, you know, for, for a long time, the northeast of England controlled what was the world's most important commodity, which was coal, uh, an absolutely vital fuel source for the Industrial Revolution. And Newcastle is a sort of the Dallas or Dubai of the 18th century. And Newcastle is interesting because it's not just so economically dynamic, but it's also a great centre of printing and publishing in the 18th century. That was quite surprising for me because I always thought of that industry as being very London, it was very naive, very London-centric, publishing and printing and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, of course, with the coal trade, places like Newcastle were extremely well connected to London. There were dozens and dozens of coal boats that went backwards and forwards like a conveyor belt up and down the East Coast uh, daily. So in comparison, you might say, to other provincial towns in England, inland towns, they were nowhere near as well connected as, as a place like Newcastle, who, you know, a provincial town might have one or two newspapers and periodicals. In the 18th century, Newcastle had 10. It was the biggest centre of printing and publishing outside London, Oxford and Cambridge. And this dynamic local economy and this the kind of vibrancy of the intellectual life of um, the North East led to and gave us some of the great figures of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, George Stevenson stands out. Uh, and his son, Robert, possibly the greatest civil engineer this country's ever produced. Um, and they, they emerged from that world, that vibrant world of the uh, the Coley time in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, you know, they, they, they didn't, George Stevenson didn't invent the locomotive, but he pretty much perfected it. And there was a generation of kind of, of intensely practical men like Stevenson, father and son. They, they were great tinkerers. You know, they could perfect a technology. And they emerged from that world. But then you've got William Armstrong, uh, who went on to become possibly the greatest armaments tycoon in British history. But he cut his teeth on designing cranes and and, and applying hydraulic technology to to dock gates and bridges and, and cranes and so on. Or you've got Joseph Swan from Sunderland, who invented the light bulb before Edison did. Let there be light, it says in Latin on his, mo- on his memorial in Newcastle. Um, or the turbine engine uh, by Parsons. And all these uh, extraordinary innovations emerged from a particular time and place where uh, a world that was dynamic, really. And and their their spiritual home was a place called the Lit and Phil, which is the Newcastle Literary and Philosophical Society, which is still the largest private library in these islands outside of London. Um, it's an extraordinary building. It looks like a sort of cross between a gentleman's club and and uh, a kind of Oxford College. It's a, it's a wonderful building. It's just just near Newcastle Station. And that was the sort of intellectual hub of that world. Yeah, where these great minds came to meet. Um, so everyone knows if you, well, maybe not everyone, but <laughs> people know if you drive up the A1 motorway, you will eventually see this huge red angel um, looming over the landscape. So this is the Angel of the North. 
and it's recognised around the world. Can you perhaps tell our listeners who might not know much about this sculpture, a bit about its history? Yes, yeah, so the, the Angel of the North is this is a massive sculpture, 60, 66 feet tall, something like that, with a wingspan of getting on for 200 feet across. It, and it's it's an angel, but its its wings look like an aircraft. And it stands on a hill uh, overlooking the A1 at Gateshead. And uh, it was built in, in 1998. And the, the, the designer of it was the, the artist Anthony Gormley. And uh, it, I think it's fair to say that when people first saw it, that first saw it, they weren't that sure. But it's become a really much-loved representation of, you might say, the, the heavy industries that characterise the Northeast, which were dominated by the heaviest of heavy industries in, in terms of coal mining, shipbuilding, uh, steel making, locomotive making, all those sorts of things. And, you know, over the last 50 or so years, a lot of those industries have been in steady and then pretty steep decline, uh, which is a problem for the Northeast because it, economically it did put all its eggs in that basket, really. And But people had extraordinary pride in the things that were made in the Northeast. I mentioned earlier about my own grandfather's uh, relationship with coal mining, but you've just got to see some of the ship launches on the Tyne, for example, or on the Weir, uh, to see the extraordinary achievements of uh, launching ships uh, and so on. And I think the Angel of the North, because it's built in this sort of industrial style, represents the things that were made in the Northeast and the local pride that was taken in them. Um, I think Anthony Gormley described the significance of the angel as uh, as threefold. Firstly, the underneath the, the hill in which it's built, coal miners worked for two centuries digging the coal out of the ground. More or less everywhere you go in, in the northeast, there, were, there was there's mine workings under your feet. And then it was to try and represent, I suppose, the transition from an industrial age um, to, to what? To an information age? Certainly an age in which those old smokestack-type industries aren't going to be as important. And then to represent, I suppose, a hope for the future of the Northeast, where it might go next. Because, you know, um, coal was, particularly coal mining, was so so vitally important in the Northeast. It was this, it was the basis of its prosperity. But now, you know, digging carbon out the ground and then burning it, doesn't have a great reputation, does it? Uh, you know, it might you might consider it was the northeast of England's fault that we released the genie of carbon into the world. Um, some might say. There's the headline I'm gonna take from this podcast that the northeast has ruined <laughs> ruined the climate. <laughs> I'm joking. Although it's interesting, a lot of people in the northeast are starting to think about well, how might we respond to the things like the climate emergency? Uh, and there there is a noticeable growth of green industries and carbon neutral industries in the northeast and the technologies that support for example wind farms or subsea technology and that sort of thing but the angel of the north is, is a nice representation of that the strength and power of northeast engineering and the, and the pride that was taken in it but also i might say as well that kind of big dash of sentimentality that's always a big been a big feature of northeastern life where life was hard and dangerous um and yet people remained hopeful and cheerful uh, and optimistic. Uh, and I think the Angel of the North is a really good symbol of all that, really. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So it's quite touching, really, because it was it was a common saying, it used to, at least it used to be, gan canny, or keep a howl, which means keep hold, 
or watch what you're doing. Um, I think there's another legacy of that, that those hard and dangerous lives that people led. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've already sort of touched on it a little bit, but what else can you tell us about the architecture in the Northeast that reveals, you know, where the history of, of the people there and the culture? Well, I would certainly recommend anyone visiting the Northeast. I mean, we mentioned the castles earlier, and some of them are absolutely spectacular. Like Bamborough Castle, which used to be the ancient capital of Northumbria, right on the coast, is absolutely spectacular. Oranic Castle, which is still the home of the Dukes of Northumberland, uh, or the Roman Wall itself, you know, these absolutely amazing ancient structures that, you know, you don't have to, they're everywhere you turn in the northeast. But what might not be as well known, I suppose, is the glories of places like Newcastle, which um, has a re- reputation, I suppose, as a kind of industrial city, which is not quite true. It, its hinterlands were always industrial. But Newcastle was always a centre, uh, was always a strategically important place. It was a centre of finance and retail and um, commerce. And that's reflected in uh, the Georgian heart of Newcastle, the grand Georgian buildings that were an example of the first time a city was ever flattened and rebuilt in the in these islands from the 1820s and 30s onwards. And um, a lot of people who arrive in Newcastle are often quite surprised because it looks a bit like Bath or Bath. As I think you see it in the <laughs> south of England. We want the north-south argument. <laughs> we'll do that next. So there's these absolutely beautiful honey-coloured Georgian buildings right across the centre of Newcastle. But there's also grand architecture in places like Sunderland and South Shields and the city of Durham. And they, I think they represent, and they were, most of them were built in the glory the, the glory years of the, the kind of industrial revolution in the, in the 18th and 19th century. And they expressed that confidence and prosperity that the northeast of England had. But there are other things, I think, that reveal something distinctive about the northeast. The ubiquitous um, Tyneside flat, which just to the to the uh, untutored eye look just like a normal terraced street of terraced houses, but are actually two-storey apartments. And uh, the northeast of England was unusual in, in England in having a, uh, the majority of people who lived in these flats as opposed to two-storey houses and so that allowed people to be heavily concentrated near shipyards and coal mines and so on and there's a variant in Sunderland a one-storey version of the Tyneside flat called the Sunderland Cottage which it's all about squeezing in as many people in together as close to their places of work as possible so they're the things to look out for that I think speak to the prosperity of the northeast but also it's kind of unique industrial past really kind of makes sense this idea of people in, in these tight-knit communities how they'd foster they'd foster close bonds and this idea of the real sociable Northumbrian person you know they're all living very closely together 
there's an expression in North, North and South Shields called altogether like the folks of Shields, which was meant to express something about the, the instinctive solidarity that those people felt because they shared hard and dangerous lives. You know, I mentioned how dangerous coal mining was earlier, but actually until the end of the 19th century, seafaring was even more dangerous. And, you know, hundreds and thousands of um, uh, British sailors would, would just drowned around the coasts of, of the British Isles annually until Samuel Plimsoll's reforms of the 1870s and 80s. But, you know, coal mining and seafaring absolutely dominated the employment opportunities in the Northeast for a long time. And, it, and that shared sense of danger and hardship bred a certain solidarity amongst the peoples who lived here. But also, it must be said, because those jobs were well paid, a slightly hedonistic culture too. That's true. We haven't touched on this. <laughs> Geordies, well, not just Geordies, Northumbrians, as you call them, and in, in, we'll touch on that again later. They've got the, this this culture of going out, having a bit of a booze and, you know, being a bit laddish. And where did that come from? Well, I I think, I mean, the, the history of, of drinking in the northeast of England is a bit of a, it is a, bit of a cliche, but it is very deep seated. Uh, Newcastle claims to be one of the first towns in England to brew beer, for example. Um, and in the uh, 16th and 17th century, there was even a punishment called the Newcastle Cloak for habitual drunkards, which was a sort of a barrel with straps on that you had to wear and be paraded through the town. But there's also other phrases like Newcastle hospitality, which was apparently a well-known phrase in the 18th century, which meant to kill someone with kindness, you know, to take them out for a big drinking session. And I think I think it basically emerged from the points I've touched on already about hard and dangerous work, which was well paid. It's inevitable that when people have time off from that stressful world, what are they likely to do? Coal miners were known uh, for that, certainly, and shipyard workers, particularly the seamen, you know, who might have been away around the world for months and they arrived back home suddenly with a load of money in their pocket. Uh, that was a notorious, you know, a, a spending spree down in the fish key and on the quayside and places like that. And um, that's been a, a really important part of Northumbrian culture for a very long time is uh, how alcohol is, you know, for better or worse, it must be said, because the rates of alcoholic abuse in the northeast are absolutely sky high still. Domestic abuse, it's, it's not all fun and jolly jibs by any means. But it's always been a kind of social lubricant for the gatherings in the northeast, which, which still happen. And, you, you know, I mentioned earlier that Newcastle's regularly voted one of these great party cities, you know, beat Rio de Janeiro as a, as a world party city a few years ago, which, yeah. which was a surprise to some people, considering how cold it is up here. <laughs> and even like Geordie Shaw on telly pushes this image as well as of the party place, the going out and the... That kind of thing. It does, and it, it, it can be a bit tawdry, all of that, it must be said. It doesn't paint the best picture. But I do think it is so deep-seated and ingrained in the culture of the North East, and it, and it does, it just goes back centuries. It is, um, it's hard to shake shake off that culture. But there's also other offshoots that you might see in things like Geordie Shaw, that, that the, the culture of, in the 18th and 19th century, they used to talk about the Bonnie Pit laddies and the Bonnie Pit lassies, the, the tradition of getting dressed up again, because he had disposable income to spend on clothes, that Gananute, as they'd say in the Northeast, for a good drink with a new outfit on, uh, isn't just a modern thing by any means. It, it does go back centuries. 
One of the things in your book is that you didn't use the terms Geordie or Mackham. Um, you chose Northumbrians as a sort of catch-all term for the people of the North East. Um, can you explain your rationale behind this? And can you also explain the, the difference between these two terms for people who don't know? Certainly, yes. I, I suppose for the rest of the country, Geordies will be very well known as a, as a term for people from the North East. But it's become slightly problematic over the last 20 or 30 years as as a Mackham identity has grown up in around Sunderland and Wearside in general. Uh, now, Geordies is a term that, that you can get slightly, you can get in a slightly tedious sound of bow bells type debates about who qualifies as a Geordie. You know, is it only people who are born on Tyneside and all this sort of thing? Basically, Geordies used to refer to um, much of the industrial and coal field the people who lived in much of the industrial and coalfield parts of the northeast of England, on the rivers Tyne and Weir, it must be said. And there are various explanations for it. Either it was to do with the fact that Newcastle was loyal to King George II and the Jacobite rebellion of 1745, loyal to King Geordie, or it was because they were they preferred the, the miner's lamp that was invented by George Geordie Stevenson in preference to the, the lamp that was invented by Humphrey Davy. Or it was when George Stevenson himself gave evidence in Parliament over railway building schemes in the 1830s and his accent was mocked in London because they couldn't understand what he was saying. Geordie Stevenson, that is. But it's hard to pin down and be really precise. But like I said, the, the term Geordie used to be in much, more, in much more widespread use. But because there's been a lot of water under the bridge over the last 20 or 30 years and some of the rivalries are exacerbated by football loyalty, it must be said, between the supporters of Newcastle and Sunderland, the term Geordie's become a bit more contentious. So I was looking for a more inclusive term, uh, and that's why I settled on Northumbrian, um, because it it is more inclusive, but it also allows you to connect back to the deep past uh, in ways that I've already described earlier, even as far back as the, the kingdom of Northumbria, because I've always been interested in those continuities. And for all the, the local rivalries that which, which still dominate much of northeastern sporting life, at least, um, I think there are deep continuities and similarities across a landscape which I delineate much as they did in the in the Middle Ages as uh, basically the land between the Tweed and the River Tees, what they called in the Middle Ages the land between the brine and the high ground and the fresh stream water. And I think the continuities and everything from patterns of work and architecture and uh, military service and everything in, in what is basically Northumberland and Durham now with the modern county of Tyne and Weir as well. That's that's the, the region that I'm writing about. And uh, it, it just became a, um, a convenient term to use. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in the northeast identifies with the term Northumberland now. I've kind of tr I'm trying to reinvent it. But uh, I've been quite pleased that that people who read the book, particularly people from the most southerly parts of that region, seem pretty comfortable with it. But these terms are often contentious, so I'm, I am conscious of all that. Just for a bit of fun, as we're nearing the end of the podcast, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So we have a high percentage of international listeners of this podcast who probably don't know much about Northeast dialect apart from maybe what they've heard Cheryl Cole say on X Factor or something um, so what are some of your favorite sayings or phrases from the region that our international listeners might not have heard of 
Yeah, so I think a good place to start is the term Huawei, which is either spelt with an A or an O. So H-A-W-A-Y or H-O-W-A-Y. And it basically means come on or hurry up. And it's often teamed with the word man, which is used a lot in the <laughs> Northeast for, em- for added emphasis. So you might say, how are you, man? Which, which will mean kind of, I'm fed up with this nonsense. Or hurry up, come along, that sort of thing. It's even written, spelled out in the seating at Sunderland's football ground. Uh, because the term how are the lads is a, is a popular football terrace cry for both Newcastle and Sunderland supporters. It means, come on, hurry up, um, you know, play a bit better, work harder, that sort of thing. And it was a useful term in industrial context, as you can imagine. You know, how are we need to finish this job, that sort of thing. So how are is a good one. It always amuses me that um, Northeastern men who have kind of, kind of famed for their uh, explicit masculinity a lot of the time use the term bonnie lad bonnie meaning yeah. beautiful bonnie means beautiful <laughs> and so a typical greeting in the northeast is still i'll reach bonnie lad which means are you all right bit like ciao bello in italian you know and so <laughs> they use bonnie lad quite a bit or there's terms like ben child and there's a lot of overlap with with certain scottish words of course in the northeast and even some overlap with really old Germanic stroke Norse expressions like, for example, ganyem, which means to go home in Northumbrian dialect, means exactly the same in Danish. A Danish person would understand what that meant because it means the same thing. Um, but there are other things like wayai, which means, of course, you're yeah. right. Um, <laughs> so my um, granddad is from Durham, grew up there, lives there now. But my dad never knew him, didn't know him until he was in his 40s. And I grew up in the Midlands, as did my dad. And we basically got in touch with my granddad when when my dad was in his 40s. And we went up there to meet him for the first time. And it was like, he was like, I'll read pet and all this, you're a canny lass you are. And it was, it was a learning curve, this new language that I suddenly stumbled across. I mean, the word canny itself. I mean, I could write an essay about just that one word because... It just tends to mean agreeable or good or particularly social situations. You know, we had a canny, we had a canny night out or it kind of means friendliness, uh, agreeableness, particularly in social situations, like I mentioned earlier. But there's also other other things that stick in my mind from my own grandparents. And, and I think relate back to how dangerous life used to be, because they used to say to me uh, when when we when we parted, they'd say things like gan canny. Which means watch what you. Uh, which means sort of go carefully. It's a dangerous world out there. Uh, or watch what you're doing. Watch what you're mm. doing. Uh, and I think it was just their experience of working in industries where you never knew when the next accident was going to happen. So it was quite touching, really, because it was it was a common saying. At least at least it used to be, "Gan canny" or "Keep a hold," which means keep hold, or watch what you're doing. Um, I think there's another legacy of that, that those hard and dangerous lives that people led. That was Dan Jackson. Dan's book, The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People, A New History, is out now, published by Hearst. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Friday when Dan Todman will be discussing Britain's experience in the Second World War. A 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.